This episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by the World Congress of Catholic Nurses, happening this summer, August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, at the National Shrine of Our Lady of Chestakova in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. For more information, check the link in our show notes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you very good conversation each week. Some might even say it's great. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed, the allergen himself, Condon. Ed, you are just congested, man. Uh, no, that's true. I'm. Uh, it's it's definitely pollen season in the District of the Columbia and the surrounding environs, and it's pretty brutal. Um, the other day you were working in your car because for some reason that was helping you be have less allergy. I didn't even understand it, but I you it seemed to you it seemed to me that to you it was so obvious that working in your car was a better thing for your allergies. What was going on there? Uh, well, just every the, the entire air in this area is so thick with green pollen, you can actually taste it on your tongue. And so in my car, I could set the air conditioning to recirculate the air in the car uh, so I wasn't breathing yes. any external air. Um, and it helped a little bit. I'm on two separate prescription strength antihistamines and a couple of other things. And it's it's not fun, JD. I'm not going to lie. Oh, I'm very sorry. This happens to you. I mean, you, you suffer from very serious seasonal allergies every single year. Yeah, I was not made for this part of the world. I think I'm going to have to, you know, take to the mountains and hide, uh, which, you know, I, I, I'm dispositionally inclined that way already. So if if nature is, is forcing me out, then, you know, that's just a sign. Yeah, uh, Davy and I, my son Daniel and I were talking this morning about vocations because he he asked me in the car on the way to school what confirmation was. And uh, first I said a theology in search of a sacrament, ha ha, or a sacrament in search of a theology, ha 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 ha. But he didn't think that was funny. So, um, you know, uh, so then I had to explain to him the theology of confirmation. We were talking about how God gives, the Holy Spirit comes and gives us special graces for the vocation that God made us and the things that God's going to call us to do. And it's a particular station of our baptism and these kinds of things. And then Davey was asking me about vocations and, and somehow we ended up talking about hermits and he asked me what a hermit was. And I honestly, I, we don't know any hermits, but I thought about bringing you up in a certain way as a person with a, with a sort of her medical disposition. Uh, but I thought that might confuse him because you've got a wife and a kid and all that. But I did, uh, for what it's worth, this has been on my mind lately. You know, I, um, I did know, to the extent that one can know a hermit. I did know a hermit for a brief period. Um, he he lived uh, on the grounds of a church on a mountain surrounded by fields in uh, in Tuscany. His name was Daniele. He was a really great guy. He was a, he was a brother. He wasn't a priest. And he made and grew all his own food, also his own honey and cheese, which and grew his own grapes and made his own wine, which is how I came to know him because he, he had the good stuff. Um and a priest would come through once a week to say mass for him. And, you know, you'd see him uh, on the grounds, you know, tending his olive groves and his vineyards and minding his bees. And I just thought, this guy's got it figured out, you know? Yeah. Like if he was a priest, he, he would never be allowed to get away with that because they'd have, you know, they'd have had him saying masses at five different parishes in the area. But he just, you know, he did his thing. And, well, it's not my vocation, clearly, because I have a wife and child and a child. So, um, so that that wasn't what God was calling me to, but I I get it. I see the attraction. <laughs> I I'm sure I'm sure, and we all see the attraction. I I see the attraction for that sort of solitude for a little while. Like I like to go on a little retreat to a little Pistinia right. for not, a couple not of forever, days without electricity. Forty fifty years. <laughs> 
I am reading right now, um, I'm not very far into it, but I, I just started a really interesting biography of Charles Difficult, who I know very little about. Oh, he's and, fascinating, um, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's very fascinating, and sort of I'm reading about his eremitic life, um, you know, in North Africa. Um, but he also had, I mean, this is a guy who is a who is living a very eremitical life, uh, a, a priest living in North Africa. But at the same time, he because he had been um, a French military officer, he like continued to have sort of like military and political contacts. And it was just, he had like the most, for a hermit, he had the most interesting social circle that you can imagine because he had, you know, these sort of uh, North African village people who um, were a part of his sort of um, pastoral presence and would come to him in various ways. And uh, and then these sort of French military officers he was in correspondence with. And I mean, just really, uh, you know, a hermit, I think this is what's um, often misunderstood. This is true for a hermit. This is true, I think, for cloistered religious sisters. If you want to know what's going on in your own hometown, I found this often when working in a chancery. I could learn more about what was really going on in the chancery um, at the Carmel because the sisters just know everything, um, you know, than I could any other way. It's an amazing thing. Well, I mean, they're the ones you want to tell because who else do you right, want to pray their for prayers? You? And, right, exactly. No, I, That's exactly right. I mean, blessed Charles, soon to be saint, I guess. Um, he wasn't just any military, like he was a cavalry officer, if I recall, like he was, mm -hmm. and I mean, being a cavalry officer in, in the French army in that period of time, like you, you had a very active social life as a young man. Well, he was from and a fancy family. He was from a fancy family and he, you know, he lived it up. Like when he, when he took to the desert, he was walking away from the real deal. Like he, he yeah. wasn't living a life of quiet middle-class obscurity and going, well, maybe I'll take it yeah. a step further. Like he, he walked away from the Moulin Rouge. One of the things which has endeared me um, to Blessed Charles Difficult, and I realize we were just making our show list and saying inevitably we'll end up talking about something that we completely but different. One of the things which, yeah, one of the things which endeared to me, um, Blessed Charles Difficult, is that he, he was a portly fellow, and um, myself being, um, you know, uh, somewhat in the in the in the range of portly, um, I uh, I found that um, interesting to to see him go from um, portliness to a life of very very serious asceticism. Also. Uh, he also was eating for breakfast um, flour mixed with spoiled goat's milk, and I just can't imagine anything more penitential um, than than that. Listeners, Ed and I actually, we were talking about what we're going to talk about on this show, and we're going to have a show today about a couple of significant things that are happening in the life of the of the church that we think really need to be talked about. But the big news of this week for um, Catholics in these United States and for Americans indeed was the leak of a draft decision in the Supreme Court on... Um, the abortion case um, that would potentially overturn Roe versus Wade and a leak of a, of a draft text that effectively does overturn Roe versus Wade and does so very stridently. Now that's you're very you know directly. Now that's it, it is a leak of a draft. It is not a decision, but it's a leak of a draft. There are a lot of things to talk about with regard to that, and um, it's what everybody's talking about right now. And there are a lot of ecclesiastical elements of 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 that, in addition to just sort of it being a significant issue in the Catholic milieu, and so. We want to talk about all that, but what we're going to do is effectively early next week uh, record a bonus episode all about uh, Roe versus Wade and the pending Dobbs decision so that we can kind of take it through piece by piece. There are a lot of elements that we want to talk about from an ecclesiastical perspective, and we knew that if we tried to jam that into this conversation, we would, um, you know, we'd lose all these other things that we want to talk about. So plus, we honestly thought that you have probably been hearing about that all week, so we thought we would talk about some ecclesiastical things that are happening today, and then early next week release a um, a bonus episode, kind of all about Roe versus Wade and what's happening there. 
we are we, there's a lot of stuff happening in the church right now and um where we're going to start is basically um a very interesting thing happened um this morning in Rome kind of a development an an unexpected development in the ongoing sort of uh saga of uh pillar podcast listener Cardinal Angelo Bacciu and uh and his criminal trial so what's going on and what has just happened well so Two things happened in the last 24 hours that were interesting. The first was that Cardinal Angelo Becciu uh, returned to court in Vatican City yesterday, Thursday, for his second stint in the in the sort of uh, metaphorical witness box. And he answered a lot of questions now that Pope Francis has waived pontifical secrecy on him. Uh, he answered a lot of questions about his uh, his dealings with your your favorite character in all this, Cecilia Moragna, the sort of self-styled private spy and international woman of mystery. And I don't think Cece Moragna would recognize her name when it comes out of your I mean, you got to just really... I know. Hey, Cece Moragna. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know. But, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I want to be gentle about the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so there was there was talk of, uh, kind of as you talked about, um, Pope Francis having approved a sort of secret budget of up to a million euros to contract through Morania with uh, the the Inkman Group, uh, I think it's called, in London, which is one of these slightly hard to pin down or describe without sounding overtly dramatic or sinister outfits that style themselves as uh, sort of private protection, intelligence gathering, and security firms. Uh, but anyway, so the idea was that they were going to sort of work to secure the release, including by ransom if necessary, uh, this Colombian religious sister who had been kidnapped in 2017 in Mali. And that's, that, that's interesting that he, he put this on the record in, in court and everything, because, you know, we'd, we'd reported around this, uh, for a while that this was, you know, the the theoretical justification for his involvement with Moranya and the hundreds of thousands of euros that he authorized being paid to her, which she, according to Vatican prosecutors, successfully spent on five-star hotels and designer label handbags. So that's all interesting. I mean, there's there's an out there's an outstanding there are a lot of outstanding questions about this, even taking into account what Betchu said in court yesterday. Um we still don't entirely understand the timeline of if this is what it was all for, then why uh, this religious sister was only released in October last year, long after both Moronia and Betchu stopped having anything to do with Curiel anything, and were actually already under indictment in the Vatican, and at which point the Italian intelligence services basically took credit for orchestrating her release. So there's some outstanding questions about that. But anyway, one of the other things that Cardinal Betchu talked about, which we kind of knew about, we, we had known that the, the claim that sort of Moran, the CC Moragna claim that um, the, we had known the CC Moragna claim already that um, her, that money had gone to her for the sake of um, sort of ransoming hostages and religious sisters who had been held hostage by a jihadist, which is like an unbelievable thing. But then there had always been this other thing where like the money went to that, but then CC Moragna was buying purses. And so there was some, right. Do du- du- you know, something dubious there, but what's, what, what was new sort of in well, what was what, new was um, Cardinal Betchew saying all of this on the record and saying the Pope had approved all of this and insisted on secrecy. Now, of course, if you are paying ransoms to terrorist groups, you do want to keep it secret because otherwise it just encourages them. Uh, so there's that. But I mean, there are, as I said, there are a lot of outstanding questions. I mean, Moranya has told Italian media before that, yeah, she was doing stuff like this, but also she was acting uh, to collect dossiers of compromising information on 
the private lives and moral failings of senior curial officials for Cardinal Becci. So there's a lot of stuff he didn't talk about or address in his uh, appearance in court yesterday. But one of the things he also talked about is the the famous payments that he authorized from the Secretary of State to a tech security firm called Newstar. It's actually called something else now, but it was called Newstar at the time um, in Australia, which was coincidental with the prosecution and trial of Cardinal George Pell, who had been Betsy's habitual sparring partner over Vatican financial affairs when Pell was running the Secretariat for the Economy. And as we have reported, um, it. Italian media have for some time now been full of uh, some fairly fruity allegations or um, speculations about what these payments to this Italian tech security firm could have been for, up to and including speculating that maybe it was used to sort of help fund in some way or other the the prosecution of Pell. Betsy has always denied this, but he's insisted that what the money was for was top secret and he couldn't possibly tell anyone. Uh, including Cardinal Pell, who repeatedly has made sort of public requests that Betchew clarify this so that they can get past this media speculation and everything. So anyway, yesterday in court, Betchew said, as uh, confirmed a story that we had previously reported, I think about two or three weeks ago, that this money was for uh, the purchase of the dot .catholic top-level domain name, uh, that it was, you know, that that's what that's what this was all about was the the Vatican were buying domain names and you know we did some reporting on this at the time and we we ran the numbers and the numbers seemed to more or less add up uh, you know it's not it's not proof that that's what the money was for but it, it seemed plausible to us at the time so Cardinal Betchu said all of this in court and um, he addressed a few other things but you know I had when I was putting the newsletter to bed last night at about two in the morning I I had pretty much written it to say. I'm not going to rehash all of this for you people. You know, if you want to read it, we've got the full report. But I understand that there's a lot of detail and, you know, you, you can't, you can't, there's only so much you can handle every week. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys off lightly this week. And then um, shortly after I did that, my phone rang in the middle of the night and a friend of mine was calling to say, hey, have you seen this statement from Cardinal Pell? And sure enough, overnight for me in the morning uh, in Rome, uh, Cardinal Pell put out a statement I would say questioning uh, fairly directly. It was a very direct statement, wasn't it? Was a it? very direct statement, questioning the evidence that Cardinal Betchew gave to the court, uh, calling it incomplete. Uh, in other instances, he characterized it as bizarre and saying that, you know, it doesn't add up and that this actually raises more questions than it answers about the whole thing. And so one of the things that Cardinal Betchew had told the court, and he produced a letter to prove it, quote unquote proof, uh, was that actually these payments to this tech security firm to buy domain names was approved. The The spending was approved by Cardinal Pell personally. And he produced a, a letter from 2015 signed by Pell authorizing um, an expenditure for this. Now, Cardinal Pell pointed out in his statement this morning that the 2015 document was for a different Vatican department. Uh, and if these were related issues, why was the secretary of state cutting the checks? And he said, you know, what is a, a letter from me authorizing the Pontifical Council for Social Communications, I think it is, uh, in 2015 to buy domain names has nothing to do with four subsequent payments over successive years, you know, emerging from the Secretary of State. You know, those that one doesn't make sense to the other. And basically saying, right. I, I don't understand. I don't follow. But I can tell you this. I didn't approve $2.3 million Australian going to this firm in this period of time. And but isn't Betchu saying that he did, that he signed off on it directly? He is. And Cardinal Pell, let's just say, is uh, is fairly directly questioning that. 
he's saying, yes, he approved some expenditure for a project to buy domain names. But he said that basically what he signed and what Betchu says he signed with this letter does not add up with what the questions are about in these four payments that emerged from the Secretary of State going to Australia. So it's it's very interesting, um, both directly for this issue, because... Uh, you know, it's it's only going. It, Cardinal Pell was re-raising these questions and saying that you know Cardinal Betchu gave what he called an assured performance, uh, demonstrating his complete uh, innocence in in all his financial dealings at, at the Vatican. I I have it hard to read Cardinal Pell's statement without detecting a note of irony in that sentence. But anyway, um, so it's interesting, sort of in that contained issue of New Star and the payments from the Secretary of State and all of that, and. Uh, for myself, I don't have an opinion. I have, I have, we've written a lot in the last few years about the payments to Newstar. Um, well, we did the math, right? I mean, the and the payments kind of added up to what the cost of the dot Catholic domains would be, which seems to support the idea that the money actually went. It does. To where the um, yeah. Something we wrote yesterday before Pell's statement came out, and Cardinal Pell said directly in his own statement this morning, though, was that, well, that doesn't make sense in a couple of ways. The first being, Cardinal Betchu has repeatedly said to media outlets, including us, and to Cardinal Pell in public, I can't tell you what this money was for because it's basically above your pay grade. It's super secret. Now, it doesn't make any sense for Cardinal Betchu to say to Cardinal Pell, I can't tell you what this money was for because it's super secret and above your pay grade. And then on right. the other hand, say, but you knew all about it and you signed off on it. That That's a total right. non sequitur. Um, I, I'm not saying it proves anything. Again, I, I don't have an opinion on what what the sum total of all of this is, I would agree with Cardinal Pell in so far as he says, something doesn't add up here. There are more questions that need answering. We need more detail. I, I would agree with that. So it's fascinating, this development in, in the sort of nutshell of this one issue, but more widely, it's even more interesting to me because this is the first time Cardinal Pell has addressed directly the sort of goings on in this financial trial, which has been carrying on now since the end of July last year. And one of the things that I have been wondering is, you know, we've had, uh, we're only about two or two and a half months into the sort of, if you like, formal trial phase, having dealt with all the pretrial motions and everything. And the witnesses being called so far have all been defendants, effectively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the prosecution has had their, their full files in, and then the defendants have been sort of coming in and out, cycling through with the judges, quizzing them on the prosecution's argument. I have been wondering when we're going to see some evidentiary witnesses. Yeah. And who that might be, if we would see people like Libro Malone, who was bounced out of his job as Auditor, Auditor General, General by Cardinal mm-hmm. Betchew uh, in mm-hmm. some extremely colorful circumstances. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if we were going to see Cardinal Pell call as a witness. And I find it hard to interpret this statement from Cardinal Pell in any other way than to say he's basically begging the prosecution to call him as a witness. You know, saying this, you guys are not hearing the whole story. The court needs to hear all the facts and it needs to have someone who understands the fact pattern of what went on there for years and years. And I'm your guy. Why do you think they haven't? I don't know. I mean, a part of me is uh, wondering if maybe that's just being, it, you know, the, the trial seems to be moving in cycles. We had the, all the pretrial motions and everything, which took forever, but those have been dealt with now. And now we seem to be cycling through the defendants, uh, giving their sort of first round of answers to the judges, at least those that are willing to turn up to court. And, and I wonder if at the end of all the defendants sort of having their first say, the ball doesn't get turned back over to the prosecution to say, well, we've got some more evidence we'd like to introduce or some more witnesses we'd like to call to sort of 
build on what the defendants have all said. And I wonder if we won't see a sort of whole nother cycle of witness callings and evidence being presented after the defense has had their sort of first crack at defending themselves. That's one Mm -hmm. possibility. Um, The other possibility is the prosecution was at this for years and years and years, and they've been told, you know, enough already. You've got what you've got. You found what you found. Make it stick or don't. And mm-hmm. if it's if it's that, then that's a problem. Um, it's going to be it's going to be very very hard to contend that the prosecution were using every tool in their bag to make their case if key witnesses who know everything about how Vatican finances were running, like Cardinal Pell and Libero Malone, aren't called to give evidence. But for example, guys like Rene Brulhart and Tommaso de Ruzza who were leading the Vatican's Financial Information Authority at the time and are themselves facing charges, are called. It doesn't make sense to have just the guys who are accused come and talk about how everything they did was fine and above board and totally in line with the law, but not have anyone else who was working in the field at a senior level come in and say, well, no, they weren't, if that's what yeah. they think. I don't know, because yeah. they haven't been called to give evidence. So yeah. it's, I mean, it's a big deal. Like I said, I was, when I was putting the newsletter to bed last night, I was like, well, I, you know, I think I'm just going to let people off lightly this week. And then I got this as like, nope, instead I'm going to, I'm going to write this up yeah. and now we've got some breaking news. This is amazing. Yeah. So I, yeah. I wonder if we aren't going to see um, more stuff like this. If, people like Libero Malone might not choose to start weighing in in public and say, well, I know some stuff and I don't agree with what's being said in court. Well, and it's interesting to see, it's interesting to see thus far. I mean, one, anybody who has been listening to us talk about Vatican finance scandals for the past nigh on these many years, and thank you for listening to us talk about Vatican finance scandals for the past nigh on these many years, but anybody who's been listening to us talk about this affair, um, Ha- realizes that there are just so many tentacles, and um, I-, I think of it as like a cave. More than tentacles, I think of it as a cave with lots of little. Um, um, I-, I don't know what the words for this are because I'm not a spelunker, obviously. But um, you know how a cave Ed has lots of different veins that one yes. can travel down, or. or paths or whatever. Um, you know, there are just so many potential sort of paths and they may well lead, some of them may well lead to, um, you know, you, you're spelunking and you're going through a tiny little sort of cracks and crevices and then suddenly you find yourself in this like great big wide open room, you know, that you wouldn't have anticipated. Some of them may well lead to very sort of big opening things. But I find interesting which things sort of have um, have been followed, which threads have been followed and which ones haven't. So right now there's this focus on the sending of the money to Australia, which, you know, we have done the math. We do think that um, it does sort of the dot Catholic stuff does add up. I have never, for myself, I have, it has never sort of met the Occam's razor test for me that the Holy See was sort of, that someone at the Holy See was sort of sending money in a way that was influencing Pell's trial. That's never made sense to me. But, you know, there are these open questions, but there are completely other sort of threads and, and paths and rooms here. Um Peter's Pence uh, and a, a whole sort of variety of questions about Peter's Pence, P- Pence um, the which pertain to even to the U.S. and the way that Peter's Pence is promoted, but also you know Pell saying that the use of the money is bizarre, um, the the cancellation of the of the audit, um, all of these different things, all of which are still like areas that can um, be mined. A- a- at the same time, you know, in a trial there is a joinder uh, in a in a in a. Vatican City State trial, there's a, what's called a joinder of the issues. The trial is asking particular questions. Did Angelo Becciu abuse his office, embezzle, and, you know, these other things in the context of X, Y, and Z? So on the one hand, there's intended to be a focus. And on the other hand, 
there's the possibility, you know, and the focus is sort of connected to sending money to his brother, through his brother to a charity, the London deal. But there's the possibility for all these other sort of veins. How much do you think those other veins might themselves be um, explored in the context of, of the trial? Or do you think that at some point the judge is going to say, look, we have to focus on the on the questions in the contestatio here? Well, I mean, the uh, the the indictment, the libellus, if you like, that was submitted by Vatican prosecutors is several hundred pages long and versus 10 separate individuals. I, I for myself, and I've, I've been saying this for some time, it's never been clear to me why this is all happening in one trial, because you know, the if you like, the common theme here is everything was discovered through the investigation, which was begun to look at the London property deal, which then, thanks to a warrant signed mm-hmm. by Pope Francis, basically spread out into investigating the financial doings of the Secretary of State more generally. But there are a lot of weird and wonderful sort of side branches to this whole thing. Like you said, the the question of Cardinal Betchew. And- trunks. I think in a cave they might call them trunks, like... Uh, trunks and uh, I don't know. Never mind. I, I, for God's sake, I'm not a spelunker head. Fair enough. Um, but then you know the guys like Enrico Crasso, who is facing all sorts of charges. You know, there's there's one um, instance in in the prosecution documents that said he you know he got the Vatican to dump millions of dollars into an investment into a highway in I think it was North Carolina that never existed, and the money was actually right. going to you know buy stock in three small Italian companies of. interesting and questionable provenance. Uh, You know, there's there's all of these little side issues. None of them are particularly connected as individual financial deals. They're only connected through the people that were all sort of operating this weird web of um, influence and mutual reference around the Secretary of State. So I don't know how helpful it is to have all of this, you know, try to be hashed out in a single trial, except to say that, you know, they're in this for the long haul and they're going to be hearing this case for two years. And at the yeah. end, they're just going to settle everything. Um, but it's going to be a job of work. I, But, you know, when talking about, say, Cardinal Becciu and the various accusations he's facing, there's there's not necessarily much of or even any connection between the different topics that he's likely to be grilled on. So you've got the question of money sent from both the Italian Bishops' Conference and the Vatican to um, a charitable, a Catholic charitable outfit in Sardinia. Um, through his brother, including through his personal bank account and stuff like that. So these accusations of embezzlement towards his family, which Betchew told the court yesterday was the was the sort of smoking gun that led uh, Pope Francis to to strip him of his rights as a cardinal and fire him back in 2020. Uh, and which he said, there's nothing improper here and he's going to prove it. So there's there's that. Then there's the stuff around the quote unquote London property deal. Now, Cardinal Betchew had, as near as I can tell, uh, little to do with the actual purchase of the London property, because the finality of that deal was at the back end of 2018, when he left his position to Sostituto and Edgar Pinapara had taken over the role. Betchew was still around and trying to sort of uh, present alternative bids to buy the London building, at least according to some people, as a way of forestalling an investigation into the whole mess. But Cardinal Betchew does bear responsibility for signing up to the whole investment plan, which got them involved with all of these guys in the first place. And right. as you know, we sort of recapped in our reporting yesterday, there's a there's a long tail to that. And the sort of weird and wonderful train of decisions that was made that saw Vatican money being sunk into, I don't want to say fake debt products, but let's say very, very questionably viable debt products that were marketed by the guy who ended up allegedly extorting the Vatican in the first place. You know, it all... 
it, it, it all gets very, very complicated. And that's one whole thing. Then you've got the Cecilia Marogna questions and allegations and charges of embezzlement and fraud and all of that. And then you have the stuff to do with Australia. So um, it, it's hard to say that there's one case against any of uh, the defendants in the Vatican trial. It's actually, you know, five or six or more cases going on simultaneously that just have a lot of common characters. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for people to follow uh, including journalists, to follow along with the trial, even if you're turning up to court every day, even if you're listening to every word, unless you have, um, I don't want to say a gigantic conspiracy whiteboard in your office, um, but unless you have some sort of overarching picture of the whole thing, it's very hard to keep this straight. And I just hope that both the prosecution and the judges, and of course the defendants, are able to see the whole board in all of this and make sure that the trial doesn't get cabined off into being about one thing. Because if if that's what ends up happening, then we're not going to see um, a full and proper decision and answer and justice on all of the things that Vatican prosecutors say they found. So it's complicated, J.D. I think what a lot of people are wondering now is just like, what is our long-term, what is the long-term trajectory and timetable? When is this thing going to... Effectively, what we have now is that every couple of weeks when Bachu takes the stand, we report on it. Other people take the stand, we report on it. But um, I don't feel like we have a sort of narrative of the of the sort of where we are in the trial, like what act in the trial are we in, so to speak, if the trial were a play and. Uh, what are the steps which come between sort of now and resolution? Uh, If if we're assuming assuming this trial, like life is a three act play. We're just over halfway through the first act. Um, you know, we, we have yet to hear from the majority or at least half of the defense witnesses or the, the accused effectively. And again, it's an open question how many of them will ever turn up to court. So we still have all that to get through. There is presumably going to be another round of argumentation from the prosecution, having heard from all of the defendants. The judges mm-hmm. are going to have their own questions to hopefully fill in the blanks in between the arguments of the prosecution and the defense. They're going to take a long time to get through all of that. And then the judges are going to want a long time to sit with all of the evidence and everything they've heard and reach a decision. Uh, and again, a, a labellus that ran to several hundred pages. So, yeah. you know, even let's be let's be optimistic and say that June next year, they close the hearings and they say, all right, we've heard everything we're going to hear. We've talked to everyone we're going to talk to. The judges are retiring to consider. I think it's going to be another six months at least after that for them to to reach a verdict on everything that they've been presented with. So if you're looking for a time frame, I'd say we're in this for the long haul. It is May 2022 right now. I would say January 2024, we might get a verdict. Your face I fell there. No. I just, I mean, I guess I had sort of an appreciation for that in a certain sense, but I, idios mio, man. Um, well, I don't think that's unreasonable, to be honest with you. I mean, when you consider there was a two-year investigation into all of this, we spent seven months in pretrial hearings on motions to dismiss, saying we're going to have a month, um, a year and change for the actual in-trial argumentation, and then six it's months. It's exactly how long a canonical trial takes. I mean, maybe even it's a little quicker than how long a canonical yeah. trial takes. So I should be accustomed to it. 
Um, you know, but the different one difference is that canonical trials are on paper usually for the most part, and so this being a sort of in-person trial, it feels like a long time. <laughs> it just uh, it it feels like a long time. And one of the things that we I, I don't think I've really talked about is um, the fact that um, there could be a conclave between now and January 2024. Yes, and um, that that raises sort of two very interesting questions that I. I don't think we we have clarity on one. There could be a conclave between now and January 2024, um, and if there is, um, and I, you know, I, I pray that Pope Francis has a, a long and healthy life. Peace be upon him. But it, it, you know, he's eighty something. There is a possibility that there will be a conclave between now and January 2024, just according to the actuarial tables. And um, and so one question is, his successor as, as the successor of Saint Peter, the the next Roman Pontiff. Um, could well uh, decide not to continue the trial. That seems to me to be extremely unlikely. You're shaking your head, but I, yeah, I don't I wouldn't think that's unlikely. So it's impossible. I, I don't think it is impossible. It is. Right. You, you may be saying it is. Um, it's obviously not legally impossible. You may be no, saying it's not it legally would impossible. I'm severely saying severely impugn his credibility. It would. It would kneecap um, any any re- in the same way that when Pope Francis was elected, his first priority, stated first priority, was curial reform and specifically financial reform and bringing sure. in transparency and creating the Council for the Economy and the Secretariat for the Economy and all of the things that he did. Um, I, I don't think you could argue that we have less financial scandal in the Vatican now than we did when Pope no, Francis... But we have a lot more efforts at financial reform, which is we great. We have a lot more efforts at financial reform and the trial is part of it and that's a good thing. Absolutely, but, but you, my, you can't say that the issue has become less live since then no you can't say that the issue has become less live and but to say if, that the the next pope whenever that may be would come out and have one of well we're going to abandon a landmark trial that took years to get to i i feel like that would be immensely damaging to the well, holy sees not just moral credibility but legal credibility with moneyball with i, I do too c- but that doesn't mean i think it's as close to impossible as you do i think it is entirely possible that the roman pontiff could uh, that the trial could be suspended at the time of the conclave. We'll talk about why in a moment. Um, I think it's entirely possible that the trial could be suspended at the time of the conclave and um, and simply not resume or be, you know, delayed and delayed. Now, I, look, I was skeptical that we'd be at a trial already, so take that for what it's worth. But it, it is not impossible to imagine that the next Roman pontiff, if he wanted to, could delay things immensely if he didn't want to see it proceed for whatever reason. And if there's one thing that I have learned in recent years that it is not to be surprised um, and not and like to to never say never about the de- degree to which things might change um, from one pontificate to the next uh, to the next. And we have no idea what the next pontificate is going to look like. There are honestly people who there are certainly people. Uh, we have seen them. We have read about them. Who who uh, we have read their work. Who say that? Look, Betu was railroaded. This whole thing is ginned up. Betu himself, right? What does he say? This whole thing, this entire trial, the whole reason we're here is effectively, you know, um, the media, by which he means the pillar among others, the media completely against me. Um, you know, it, there are people who are sympathetic to the Betu position. Not a whole lot of them listen to this show, but there are people who are sympathetic to the Betu position. And so it is not unreasonable to think that it that it could happen, that the trial could sort of fall into abeyance, if you will, that it could abate. I think it would not likely be, um, um, you know, entirely sort of uh, um, renounced, but I think it is possible that it could fall into abeyance. So that's one. You, you think less likely than I do. Well, I, I do think it's less likely. I mean, bear in mind um, when you say it could just sort of be quietly dropped, like go into abeyance and not be resolved. I don't know that that's a possibility. I mean, if you were only trying clerics, maybe you could get away with that. But I mean, you yeah, have that's some, a good point. You have you have a lot of uh, 
lay businessmen with a lot of money tied up in all of this. Raffaele Mincioni, Gianluigi Torzi, Enrico Crasso. You know, these guys are, I mean, um, Raffaele Mincioni has been attempting to sue the Secretary of State in UK courts for a year and a half, two years now over this. And basically they've said, well, we're deferring admitting this case and beginning until the situation resolves in the Vatican because they're saying you're effectively trying to lodge a lawsuit to forestall a criminal action against you in, a, in another sovereign jurisdiction and we're not going to do that you know when that when that is resolved we'll we'll think about whether we're going to take this case and he's not going to just let this quietly fall into permanent abeyance in the vatican um and injustice it, it can't be allowed to do that i mean you can't you can't charge a guy with something and then just say you know we're going to suspend the process indefinitely um i don't know as a as a question of legality and you've piqued my curiosity so i'm gonna have to try and find out now what actually happens to the Vatican city-state judicial system during a state of Vicente period. I mean... I don't know either, but I can, I was thinking about parallel places. Parallel places, um, the signature keeps when going. When the diocesan bishop dies, uh, when the diocesan bishop dies, his vicars lose their office because they, sh- they share in his power vicariously, except for one. And who is it? Uh, the judicial vicar. The judicial vicar. Why? Why does the judicial vicar, who who has power of the diocesan bishop vicariously, um, continue to exercise that power even when there is no diocesan bishop as a kind of legal fiction? Why do we do that? Well, because as a matter of justice, you can't have um, the permanent abeyance of all judicial processes in the diocese. Yeah. And I mean, so this carries on up place, the line. The apostolic right, signature. Signator- yeah. Go ahead, please. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, so the apostolic signature also carries on during um, during Sede Vicante periods in the Holy See. The prefect of the apostolic signature is one of the, the few, if you like, cabinet-level positions in the Vatican that um, doesn't lapse automatically with the death of a pope. So I don't know how that how that plays into the, into the Vatican City civil law, but I'm I'm now really curious, and I'm gonna I'm gonna find out. I'll have to check. Yeah, I I think that'll be I think that'll be interesting. So that's one. Two, the other question, and by the way, I want to just say well done to you and me because we are 42 minutes into our show and we're still on the first thing on our list. Oh, Lord. When we said we're probably not going to get through all the things on our list, I guess we were right. But two, um, Cardinal Betchew has been stripped of the rights and dignities of a cardinal while remaining a member of the College of Cardinals. He was stripped of the rights and dignities of the Roman pontiff at the time of the um, at the time of of a conclave, of course, the reign of the Roman pontiff would be no longer. Um, will Cardinal Betchew, do you think, I, I, how, how old is Cardinal Betchew, by the way? 78? No, no, younger than that. I, I think he's 72, 73. Uh, 73, you're right. I just looked at Okay, so he's 73. So he has right, he has, he has um, active voice in a conclave, which means that uh, he, well, he, he in uh, he would have active voice in a conclave because he's 73. Active voice means that he has the right to vote in the thing. But um, but will he make an argument, do you think, at the time of a conclave that he has the right to enter and vote? I would be shocked if he didn't make the argument, although there we have precedent and uh, it seems fairly clear. I mean, he has resigned. With, o- with O'Brien? Is that yeah, the with Cardinal mm-hmm. Keith O'Brien, who also resigned the rights and privileges of a cardinal while retaining the rank and did not attend or vote in the conclave that occurred shortly thereafter and resulted in the election of uh, Pope Francis. Uh, So we have precedent in this. And again, it's been um, fairly clear. I I, I would actually argue that Cardinal Betchew has, has legally conceded his ineligibility to attend the conclave because he tried to sue an Italian newspaper for its coverage of him, claiming that it cost him his chance at the papacy by excluding him from 
a future conclave. So if you have conceded in a lawsuit in Italy, in the Republic of Italy, that you are ineligible to a attend the conclave no i think he was basically i i think he was basically i thought what he was suing was he was saying effectively there he he claims he was defamed their defamation undermined his possibility of being elected the roman pontiff i didn't know that he conceded that he couldn't enter the thing why would he do that it'd be foolish i'll go back and check the filing but it's my recollection that i mean you're right it was a defamation lawsuit but i think he was one of the reasons why he was asking for particular damages was he said it cost him his chance to be papa billy because he couldn't attend a conclave um I again, I'll go back and check that, but I'm I'm ninety percent sure that that was the substance of his lawsuit. I think, but you will make a strong play to try to get into the conclave. I don't think he will get in, but I think he will release statement after statement saying that it is an indignity and Francis would have wanted it and all of these other things. I, I think you're right. It's going to come down to Cardinal Kevin Farrell uh, at the moment. Yeah, that is absolutely right. It is going to come down to Cardinal Kevin Farrell. But could you imagine? <sighs> Could you imagine if the Camp Camerlengo admitted a member of the College of Cardinals whom the Pope had who had seemingly obviously intended to restrict from the thing? I mean, it would be an extraordinary scandal. And for a very long time thereafter, people would question the validity of the conclave itself. I mean, you know, there there are people who question the validity of every conclave, but I mean, it would just be a mess. It would it it, it would it would rock the boat in a big way. And a group of people who I think are really underappreciated, but I think we all know in our own experience um, how important their work are, are people who have the profession of nursing. Nurses are really are like the front line of medical care. And um, a Catholic perspective in the profession and work of nursing is extremely important because a Catholic perspective allows nurses to work with an understanding of the dignity uh, and uh, with, with the dignity of the human person. Absolutely. I mean, it is it has certainly been my experience um, that nurses are if you like the the engine room of of healthcare provision that it's you know they're they're the ones who who set the tone or have set the tone in every major encounter with the medical profession that I've ever had or my family's had so the the I would say the vocation of of being a nurse uh is is a huge one and and the and the witness um of a of a catholic nurse can be incredibly powerful and today like with the bioethical challenges that probably all healthcare providers face um, and nurses especially face. I, I, I suspect it's probably really important for Catholic nurses who operate according to Catholic Catholic social teaching and Catholic principles of human dignity to know that they're not alone and that there are nurses across the globe who kind of have the same desire for Catholic, you know, Catholicly informed um, professional work and the same struggles too. If you're a Catholic nurse or you even love someone who's a Catholic nurse, uh, we want to tell you about a unique opportunity to gather with other Catholic nurses, the World Congress of Catholic Nurses. The World Congress of Catholic Nurses, uh, August um, 2nd through 4th, 2022, at the National Shrine of Our Lady of Chestahova, right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The World Congress of Catholic Nurses is not just a conference. It is a gathering of nurses for solidarity, cooperation, collaboration, and especially like prayer and community, periods of, of adoration and prayer and just um, and just mutual support for each other at the World Congress of Catholic Nurses. I, this sounds like an incredibly cool idea to me. I mean, I I like that this is not, if you like, a a business conference. This you know, this is vocational faith building is what it looks like to me. I I think it's like I would, I don't know. I'm I'm going to end up looking looking into this. And like maybe you know, maybe I think I hope that we can. Yeah, I, 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 I hope like, we I can might go there. to this. I this I this hope seems you can really go. cool. 
But it does seem really, really cool. The World Congress of Catholic Nurses, you can register, you can find information about how to register at a link in our show notes. The World Congress of Catholic Nurses, uh, be there and be filled and spring forth into rejuvenation in your nursing practice with um, with the witness talks of not only Catholic nurses from around the world, but also Cardinal Peter Turkson, who will be the celebrant at the opening mass and the keynote speaker. World Congress of Catholic Nurses, August 2nd through 4th, National Shrine of Our Lady of Chestahova, right outside of Philadelphia. Edward, Yo. Pope Francis gave an interview this week in Corriera della Sera in which he talked about Russia. Pope Francis has been criticized vociferously in some circles and in Ukraine. We had coverage last week about criticism of Pope Francis in Ukraine um, uh, w- um, uh, where people say that he has not been sufficiently attentive to their plight. He has not sufficiently condemned Russia by name. He has not... C- sufficiently condemned what they see as Patriarch Kirill of Moscow's complicity in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, We had a story about that um, that we published, I guess, on Friday of last week. And then just a couple days after that, Pope Francis said that he, you know, said in an interview that he had warned Patriarch Kirill um, not to be um, Putin's altar boy, which is sort of a very strong um, you know, criticism of Patriarch Kirill, or at least exhortation or admonishment of Patriarch Kirill, wouldn't you say? That's about as hard an ecclesiastical elbow as you can throw. I mean, other than a sort of explicit, I think your theology is flawed in this way or that way, it's something more systematic. But if you're going to do it in the sort of colorful rhetoric favored by the Roman pontiff, um, that no, is a pretty, I, I, pretty if strong... You're, if you're living in a... If you are the patriarch of a church like the Russian Orthodox Church, and you are in a I think it's fair to say Caesar or Papist uh, society there for the Bishop of Rome to say you need to not be the secular leader's altar boy is is pretty damning. I would say that actually cuts deeper than any sort of pointed theological rebuttal. I think that's I mean, that's that's that that's playing some physical basketball. Um, and uh, it is very, very interesting. I mean, it's it's strange because. I, I don't recall if it was in that interview with the Italian press uh, or if it was shortly thereafter. Um, but Francis sort of reiterated that what he really wanted to do was to go to Moscow and meet with right. Putin. He's been criticized for not going to yeah, Ukraine. And he yeah. said, well, what I really want to do is go to Moscow. I asked Putin if I could come and meet with him to plea for peace. I mean, which is, again... Right. Which, again, and we've talked about this on the show before, um, you know, yes, Pope Francis has gotten um, a lot of criticism for not sort of in terms denouncing Putin, in terms denouncing uh, the Russian invasion as a as an unjust war of aggression. I, I think he's actually, if you if you read what he's said on the subject, um, I think he's been pretty clear that that's what it is. But he has stopped short of calling Putin, you know, a war criminal and things like that. And, and we've said on the show before, and I still think it's true that, you know, the reason Pope Francis has not done this and the reason that popes in general in history don't do this is, or one of the reasons is so that they can then say things like, but I really want to come to Moscow and meet with Putin and plead for peace. Whereas if you're sort of on record as a as a sort of diplomatic belligerent, to coin an oxymoron, um, that's not going to be a possibility at all. Now, it sounds like Putin has said basically, why would I want to meet the Pope? 
uh, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Holy See has uh, about a hundred times since um, Putin invaded Russia in on February. Excuse me, since Putin invaded the Ukraine on February twenty fourth, the Holy See has said about a hundred times, "We're ready to we're ready to negotiate this. We would like to negotiate this." And the Holy See, you know, does play a role in negotiating conflict. Um, they they negotiated a a peace between um, Colombian. Um, rebel guerrillas and the Colombian government not so long ago. They have historically played this kind of thing. But Russia has not expressed any – I mean, it's sort of like the Holy See seems to be sort of pressing its nose against the glass saying, we'll help, we'll help. And Russia has not at any point expressed any interest in this. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I mean, that's that's in itself, I suppose, not, not surprising. But it doesn't mean the Vatican doesn't want to make the offer and doesn't want to keep being able to make the offer. Uh, and I will be honest, I was – I was surprised by um, Francis's remarks to Carol about, you know, being being Putin's altar boy and stuff like that. Um, I was surprised to hear he'd said this to Carol in that in that Zoom call they'd had a couple of months back. And and I was surprised that Francis having, you know, put out what was a very sort of milk toasty uh, account of that phone call initial or Zoom call initially. Yeah. Uh, and having kept that sort of spicy stuff out of it, that he let it come out now. And I wonder if this isn't a sign of sort of the loss of papal patience with this whole thing and saying, look, I, I wonder if that wasn't a, a sort of, you know, a deliberate elbow thrown on TV to sort of get Putin and Carol's attention, particularly Carol's, and say, I've been talking to you, frankly, in private, but I have been, you know, abiding by, uh, you know, a, a sort of studied civility in my public statements, but I can go another way if you want, you know, if you're not going to talk to me in private and there's nothing to be gained by me, you know, trying to, you know, preserve a sort of fraternal tone, then, you know, this, I I can say a lot more interesting things. So I I was very interested to see that the Pope sort of let that come out. And I don't know what happens next. I mean, it's interesting that he, he wants to go to Moscow. I, I don't know now that he said he would like to go to Moscow, how long he can credibly not go to Kiev. Well, he said he couldn't go to Kiev, right? He said he couldn't go to Kiev. Right. But, I, but you know, I mean, if you can go to Moscow, you can go to Kiev. To, to make your point, you know, to make your point about, you know, sort of the, 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 the significance of the Pope saying this in an interview, you know, it is the custom of the Holy See that after the Holy Father meets with the dignitary head of state or otherwise a significant dignitary, that the Holy See releases a sort of very bland um, bland and summary sort of expression. They discussed it, items of mutual interest for their two countries and peace around the world or these kinds of things, even to the point where you, you remember this, I'm sure. Biden visited the Holy See. Uh, President Biden visited the Holy See last year and made a series of claims about what the Pope had told him, saying that the Pope had encouraged him. And I believe saying that the Pope had encouraged do, do I remember correctly that he said the Pope had encouraged him to receive the Eucharist or something like that? Yes. And, I mean, it was a very confused um, set of things that President Biden relayed. He said that they hadn't talked about abortion, but they had oh, talked about he, abortion. He said he was a good Catholic. Yeah, right. was an he, excellent he said, Catholic and, you know, carry on, he, carry on. Biden said he just said, I just pulled it up. He said, uh, someone asked if the abortion had come up and, and Biden said, this was a visit in October of last year. Uh, some A reporter asked if abortion had come up and Biden said, no, it didn't. He said, it came up. We just talked about the fact that he was happy that I was a good Catholic and I should keep receiving communion, which is, this was in the middle of a big debate among the U.S. bishops about um, the the uh, um, uh, uh, reception of Holy Communion by pro-abortion pol- Catholic politicians. And so this was not just a nothing remark, but the Holy See, 
you know, doesn't really r- respond. It doesn't to play. These well, and, it, not, and I wasn't, and we wrote this at the time. I, I think that you know, I wasn't surprised that the Holy See didn't confirm or deny this because that's not how the Holy See plays ball. That when they're having, when they're, when they're, when they're doing the diplomatic thing, they do the diplomatic thing. And when two heads of state get together, they don't, you know, they don't tell you what was said freely and frankly. Here, Here's what the Holy See said. During the course of the cordial discussions, the parties focused on the joint commitment to the protection and care of the planet, the healthcare situation, and the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the theme of refugees and assistance to migrants. Reference was also made to the protection of human rights, including freedom of religion and conscience. Um, according to the New York Times, Vatican spokesman Matteo Bruni was asked to confirm Biden's remarks, and Bruni said it was a private conversation. So when Biden made this very sort of uh, public um, declaration of, of what he said the Pope said that was extremely controversial here in the United States— the Holy See, even when asked to confirm, said this was a private conversation. So the significance of the Pope saying, this is what I told Kirill, it should not be lost on us. It's not just like, you know, this is what the Pope does. He tells us what he said. It, it's a it's a big deal. And um, and it is intentional, whether it is intentional to signal to Kirill, I'm growing impatient, or whether it is intended to um, push back on the, the sort of meme, the Ukrainian meme that the Pope is not sufficiently supportive or hasn't condemned, condemned Russia, whether the Pope wanted to do, felt that this was the best way to respond to that, I don't know. But it's not insignificant at all that the Pope uh, no. that the Pope said this. Well, and if the Pope isn't going to go to Ukraine, and he isn't going to go to Kiev, and he's going to continue to um, make public diplomatic overtures to Moscow, both uh, ecclesiastically and diplomatically, I wonder if he might not favor some other gesture of strong support for Ukraine and Ukrainian Catholics. But I I don't know what that would be. I mean, the obvious one is to make the major archbishop of the Ukrainian Great Catholic Church um, uh, recognize him as a patriarch, uh, which they've been asking for for quite some time, and make him a cardinal, or I should say, and or make him a cardinal. But I don't know to what extent that then complicates the, the ecumenical board in Ukraine, because you have, as we've talked about a lot and written about a lot and um anatoly our ukrainian correspondent has written about very very well and a lot you have this really seismic shift in the ukrainian orthodox church and the orthodox church of ukraine one being aligned with moscow in theory and under its authority but now breaking away sort of at a rate of knots and you know we're seeing a sort of unifying um consensus in ukrainian orthodoxy uh, and I don't know if you elevate the Catholic Church there or the the head of the Catholic Church there. If that doesn't complicate things, I don't know. It's there, there's a lot of pieces on the board, and I, uh, like I said, I I find it fascinating that Pope Francis sort of tipped his hand this way and said, "Oh, I told this to Carol a couple of months ago, and it's spicy." Um, I don't know what the plan here is, but there's a lot of moving parts, and so I'm I'm reticent to say the Pope should do X. Or the Pope has to say why, because I don't know that I understand any particular clear path through all of us that achieves um, a good outcome, whatever we're calling a good outcome. Um, even if even if the sort of baseline good outcome is rallying consensus and support within and around and for Ukraine, I don't know, man. Um, it's really complicated. Yeah, it is. Well, let's talk uh, for a few minutes about another a, a, a little story, but one that we gave a little bit of attention to, and and we can talk about kind of why we have given some attention to it and and what it means. But it's a story that is, <laughs> it's kind of an internet story, if it if you will. Um, 
Um, but it's one that I think a lot of our listeners have noticed because we keep get we keep getting asked about it. Um, last week, um, a, 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 a Catholic writer, a guy with a, 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 a Substack, uh, a guy named Chris Damien, who is a writer of th- about things which are Catholic, um, kind of wrote a sort of um, account of things um, on his uh, on his Substack in which he um, gave an account of some allegations of sort of administrative misconduct at um, uh, Catholic Media Apostolate Word on Fire. Um, the uh, allegation was that. Um, uh, uh, word on Fire administrators, which include uh, Bishop Robert Barron, the Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, mishandled an investigation into an allegation of sexual misconduct on the part of an employee. And uh, uh, the reason they mishandled it was by sort of not notifying Im- – the reason they were alleged to have mishandled it was by sort of not notifying other employees that it was going on, which some employees said made them uh, un- uncomfortable or you know put them in, an, uh, put them in a bad position – by um, naming the uh, alleged victim of sexual harassment to a group of employees uh, or sexual misconduct to a group of employees, uh, which um, they said was unjust to her, and um, of fostering a kind of workplace culture at Word on Fire, which um, uh, they said some former employees said was toxic, was their language, or was otherwise kind of intimidating and made it – some said that they had been threatened with their job if they talked about this – investigation and um, otherwise made it impossible to report um, complaints about this particular employee. The employee who was accused of sexual harassment had had been fired, but they complained that effectively they said that the board of Word on Fire, which includes Bishop Barron, but Bishop Barron isn't the chairman of the board formally or anything like that, um, sort of uh, accelerated their firing of the guy um, in response to a PR scandal. And they felt that the Word on Fire, these employees raising these concerns, felt that Word on Fire was kind of um, framing these problems principally as a PR problem instead of as a broader set of issues. Um, so this guy, Chris Damien, wrote about it, and and um, and it got a lot of attention. I mean, when he wrote about it, this thing got a lot of attention among a set of Catholics sort of uh, uh, on social media, young Catholics. And many of them are people who have been critical of Word on Fire, but but some not, some who, Catholics who pay attention. But it sort of went, went viral, if you will, among uh, a set of Catholics online and um, to the point where, uh, you know, it might have been just a thing where this was raised, but to the point where Word on Fire responded and uh, to it and issued a statement earlier this week that said, no, actually, we uh, handled this well and we, we followed the proper protocol and um, uh, we did the things that we were supposed to do. There was no attempt to sort of, uh, you know, sweep this under the rug or cover it up or, or, or anything like this. And... Um, and then people sort of, you know, kind of uh, raised that again. We had heard about some of this back in January um, uh, about this sort of controversy about this employee, but we 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 never felt like we had quite a story about it. We talked to a few people. We didn't have someone on the record. Um, we we just you know we heard about it. We didn't have someone on the record. We didn't feel like we had a whole story about it, but we knew that it was kind of out there. And uh, and then when it was um, uh, when these accounts were were recounted by Chris Damien, then it kind of popped online. And um, it's really interesting, Ed, because, um, you know, there are people who say like, well, this is there, – there are people who say, you know, th- this is a disgruntled employee, a couple of disgruntled employees who – you know, what did they want? Word on Fire did the thing they were supposed to do. There are other people who say, no, this represents very, very serious problems. And Word on Fire obviously felt that it was a significant enough problem that they ha- they issued a statement about it. And then they issued a second statement 
um, that was extremely pointed. They they named the um, former employee who they thought was kind of behind this, and they said that he had, they they raised these other issues and said he had been investigated for breaching confidentiality and resigned after an investigation of breach of confidentiality. And they and they they re- and they kind of wrote very critically about. Chris Damien, they said he wants to, the guy who gave these accounts, they said he wants to take down Bishop Barron. It was not a sort of typical ecclesiastical statement by any stretch of the imagination. It was a very, it was like a declaration, it seemed to me, of, um, of uh, a declaration of war might be too, but it was a, an extremely robust defense and something obviously, Word on Fire felt that they had to kind of be, give this extremely, extremely robust defense, which now people say, well, you know, they're, uh, they're attacked. I mean, it just has gotten very, a very, very messy back and forth. And, um, and 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 we wrote a thing this week basically saying that well, this back and forth, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in this back and forth and people making these charges and word on fire saying this is not the case and people saying this is just an ordinary employment dispute and people saying, no, this is not. And it, to me, it's interesting because it's like um, in a 2000, in a post-McCarrick world, sort of how these things are navigated or unfolded. I'm not saying who who's sort of, I'm, I'm not sort of um, picking saying who's right and who's wrong here. I think there's, it's just, it's it's clear that there's a very differing set of expectations between some of these employees who are raising these things and saying word on fire should have, the word on fire should have demonstrated that they took this much more seriously and informed us and had a particular sort of set of protocols in mind. And then word on fire who says, well, we followed our established policies and made a decision. And what is it that you think we did wrong? And there's like, to me, this very sort of clear, like differing set of uh, expectations and cultural things, and I think probably some generational aspects of it. And it just reflects, I think, the unsettled um, that there is no consensus about how these things, allegations of not handling something like this appropriately, are going to be meted out. I think this thing that is happening at Word on Fire is going to be repeated often in ecclesial environments and other kinds of environments too. And we, we've seen it in sort of non-ecclesial environments before. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think one of the things that you, you can tell from the back and forth here is that um, when when an accusation that touches sort of inappropriate sexual behavior right. um, is made, almost uh, if, the, if the one who makes the accusation or the people who feel they're um, aggrieved by it or in some way involved in the accusation, if they aren't satisfied, then almost no response is satisfactory, seems to be uh, what's at the heart of this, is that there's, you know, you can have all the processes, you can have all the all the standards, all the, the set procedures that you follow, but in the end, the the acceptability of any decision that is taken, of any resolution that is made, ends up becoming entirely subjective. And how you grapple with that as an institution, as an employer, as employees, this is going to this is going to be a problem in the church for a long time. I'm, you know, we've we've seen this in more formal ecclesiastical settings. We've seen this with religious orders. We've seen this with dioceses, um, and and you know, word on fire being as it is something of an anomaly in that it's you know a, a quote unquote media apostolate, but I, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't have any sort of you know canonical personality. Um, you know, it's not it's not bona ecclesiastica in that sense. Uh, it, it's even more difficult to sort of say, you know, well, what, what is the, you know, what, certainly what is the operative canon law here? I don't know that there is any necessarily. And that, I don't think that there is. Yeah. And, yeah. and that was, you know, the substance of your analysis this week, which I deeply enjoyed reading. Um, and so how you find a way through all this stuff, I do, 
I don't know that there I don't know that there is a um, an answer that satisfies everyone or ever will satisfy everyone in situations like this. And if that's the case, then I think how um, how we collectively we in the church in in the space of Catholic institutions learn to live with that tension that it's just not going to be possible to arrive at any system, any mechanism, any uh, measure of accountability that satisfies everyone involved in any particular instance. I, I don't know how we learn to live with that, but it, well, and yeah. And so there, there are people who are saying like, there, there are people from the sort of uh, employee side. And I've heard from people who work at word on fire now who, you know, word on fire sort of said, it's this guy, but I, truthfully, I've heard even today from people who work on word on fire now, or who've worked at word on fire who say, we do think that there are problems at the, with the culture here. And we do think that some of these things were mishandled and we do think that should be addressed. Um, you know, word on fire said, well, it's this guy and he has a, he's out to get Bishop Aaron. And, but I, but I've heard from employees who say, we do think this is an issue, but you know, I think for them, it's like, we don't know how to sort of have a means of sort of redress or to bring these things to some sort of, you know, mediated resolution. We do think that there are things which are, you know, that, that we naming the, um, the person who raised, you know, who, who, um, uh, who made the allegation was, was wrong and that there are elements of intimidation. I mean, I've heard from people who say that word on fire says that's not the case. Um, and, uh, and so there's not a clear, like, these things end up becoming, uh, just sort of, tried in the court of public opinion and often end up becoming a sort of um, um, being being often kind of um, interpreted through the lens of a set of pre-existing presuppositions about the institution itself. You know, people who say, well, see, I told you this about Word on Fire, who who say everything that the people who are raising the complaint say is true. And then people who really like Word on Fire who say, no, these people just want to hurt Word on Fire. And they don't hear, you know, the, the prospect that there are genuine sort of needs for reform at these kinds of things. And that Word on Fire is not um, uh, subject in the way that a parish or a diocese would be to ecclesiastical governance means that the church won't, um, uh, qua church, like the hierarchical constitution of the church won't sort of um, do a kind of apostolic visitation to assess these things. I, I think that kind of, Differing sets of expectations about comportment, behavior, management are, are are going to yeah just continue, and there will have to be more grappling about it. And I just find it I just find it um, a phenomenon worth watching and understanding, and just realizing there's there's this there are these com- very competing sets of expectations and worldviews, and um, and then inflamed by. Um, you know there are, I think, competing sets of expectations and worldviews, and then and then that gets kind of uh, even more intensified by social media, and then by the kind of uh, uh, her- hermeneutics, you know, various kinds of hermeneutics and things like that. So it's just a strange situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, um, anything else you want to say about that? No, no. Um, I, uh, yeah, no, nothing. <laughs> I mean, I really don't know what to make of it, to be honest. And I don't want, you know, I don't know that I have a sort of a take on it or even want to give it. I, I don't want to know what to make on it. Just that there's this uh, thing happening that a lot of Catholics are paying attention to at this one place, um, you know, that I think is actually sort of representative of obviously seated in there is 2018 and, the you know, the way the Catholics felt in 2018 and then a, and then differing sets of expectations that are generational that are cultural and um you know a lot just sort of seeded and packed in there that i think is ripe for like continuing uh, competing sort of expectations of what will happen in these realities yeah yeah 
All right. Um, Ed, Sunday is Mother's Day. It is, yes. And uh, I'm surprised to hear you say that because every single time that I have said anything about Mother's Day the past few days, which is not that often. I mean, I'm not like talking about Mother's Day every five minutes. But any time that I've mentioned something about Mother's Day these past few days, you've said, well, actually, Mothering Day was several weeks ago in England because there's a holiday called Mothering Day. No, Mothering Sunday, which is a traditional – Occasion marked in the church on the fourth Sunday of Lent and has been for centuries. And I, I know I've written about I this, but and, and and in England you uh, traditionally make a pilgrimage to your church of baptism and these kinds of things. But every single time I say that something about Mother's Day, the American holiday, which is about one's mother, you say, "Well, actually, Mothering Sunday." So you've been doing that, have you not? I have, but that's because I said Mother's Day in the United States is a morally bankrupt and uh, utterly commercialized <laughs> Hallmark holiday. And in fact, I've been saying it, you've been pushing back on it so hard that I, for my newsletter today, I, I did some research into the founding of Mother's Day. And it turns out that within the first handful of years since the first quote unquote Mother's Day celebration, which was in a West Virginia Methodist church, but intended to be not religious and not denominational by its founder, um, the, the, the inaugurator of American Mother's Day was so aghast at the monster, the commercialized monster she had created, that she ended up spending the rest of her life and fortune fighting against the thing she created. So not only am I right about Mother's Day, but the person who invented Mother's Day thinks I'm right about Mother's Day. Call your mother every day. Call your mother every Sunday. Call your mother on Mothering Sunday. And you should always love your mother. And there's never a bad reason to honor your mother. I'm not too, but... a big part of your rant about this has been the fact that you don't like what you like to call Hallmark, what many people like to call Hallmark holidays. Yes. You really don't like that. And so you've been kvetching about this. Um, and so, Ed, I have compiled a list of um, of uh, days uh, here in these United States. I found a sort of calendar of commemorations and have com- compiled a list of days um, that we're going to play sort of Hallmark holiday, yes or no. And some of these are more well-known and arguably not Hallmark holidays. Um, but some of them are very, uh, you know, are very obviously less than that. And so we're just going to sort of play, uh, Ed, um, Hallmark holiday, yes or no. Uh, you know how yes or no works. I'm going to tell you a day and you just tell me instinctively and, in, you know, from your first Blanche, yes or no. Are you ready, Ed? I am. I don't see how I could possibly offend everyone in this, but I am sure I will. <laughs> you are going to offend all of the people. You should just be, you should anticipate that. Right in my right. comfort zone. Right Go for it. Now, this is from a list called uh, American Holidays and Commemorations, which is a which is a, um, a list of Hallmark holidays. Okay. Basically. Okay. Uh, Ed, uh, Mother's Day. No. You, I say yes. I say a thing. You say yes or no based upon your... Right. Mother's Day. No. How, how does your mother feel about that? Your mother. I call my mother on Mothering Sunday. Okay. And I call my mother there. every weekend. I did, 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 there's there's nothing. She's my mother is not lacking for attention or love or affection or recognition from me because I think that mm. Mother's Day is now, BS. Your mother is no longer the only mother uh, in your life. Um, does Mrs. Conan feel that way? And. Um, does Mrs. Condon have expectations for Mother's Day? We we're just talking about competing cultural expectations. Does Mrs. Condon have expectations for Mother's Day, and have you met them? Uh, she has no expectations because she does not observe the American calendar of Hallmark oh, holidays. Oh, she's English. That's right. Um, did you get her anything on Mothering Sunday? Uh, 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 an affectionate kiss and a, you know. Okay, and, uh, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough for me. That's all I need to know. Ed, National Talk Like a Pirate Day, no. which is a thing. 
This is one that I found on this calendar that made me interested in what you would say because it, it, it is a, an element of your life. National Men Make Dinner Day. This is I, this is observed in November as a sort of commemoration, according to this. It's a ludicrous idea. No, I make dinner practically every night. You make dinner practically every night. Yeah, you're the din- you're the dinner guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. you are the dinner guy. So uh, you don't need a day for that, though. No. Okay, I didn't think so. Edward um, Arbor Day. Is it trees? Yeah. Do you know what Arbor Day is? No. It's a Arbor day for trees, day. but we're like worried they're, they're feeling a bit neglected and precious and we need to like what? A- April 29th, Arbor Day is a day in which people are encouraged to plant trees. The history of Arbor Day, I believe I'm just sort of speaking off my – You are asking me here, at, about this. The history of uh, the Arbor Day comes from the 16th century, from the 16th century Spain. I see. Uh, and uh, – um, the, but the modern observation of Arbor Day was launched in 1805, this might change you, by the parish pastor in the Spanish village of Villanueva, Villanueva de la Sierra. And it was intended as a stand against the Napoleonic regime. Well, Napoleon's bad, and Spanish Catholicism is by and large good. But I'm afraid you're asking me to answer yes or no on Arbor Day in the middle of tree pollen season where every tree in the region is trying ah, to kill me. No. Cut yes, them all down. Flag, flag day. See Flag Day. What is Flag Day? What is Flag Day? June fourteenth. It's the commemoration of the adoption of the United States flag. Do you not know? No, we've got the Fourth of July. That's plenty. I don't need a Flag Day. God, I really thought Flag Day would be your only no. uh, Your only yes. No one. No one can be offended by Flag Day. I'm not offended by it. It's just silly. We adopted the flag on June fourteenth, seventeen seventy seven, by an act of Congress, and we commemorated on. Flag day. That's ridiculous. That's just cultural insecurity. It's a perfectly nice flag. We don't need to give it a day. Okay. Uh, giving Tuesday. What is Giving Tuesday? Giving Tuesday is a day uh, in which charities and nonprofits of various kinds, uh, it's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and charities and nonprofits of various kinds aim to urge um, online charitable giving to their thing is it is this like the sort of anti-black friday is that the idea here i i mean it comes after that but i i suppose that there's some sense in which hey you've just been consuming things all right i'm not a, i'm not a complete and, uh, curmudgeon so yes i'm in favor of charitable giving fine oh, okay that would have been the few that i would have said no on but um for myself but um at april 27th <laughs> this is so much fun at april 27th administrative professionals day no I I do not like holidays that are uh, holidays, quote unquote. There's nothing holy about them. I do not like this nonsense. It's like, oh, let's let's appreciate people for doing the job for which they are paid. No, (laughs) it's your job. You You know what your thank you is? Your paycheck. That's not like Mother's Day. You don't even like uh, you don't even like holidays which um, recognize people for doing jobs for which they are not paid. As a as a non Mother's Day kind of a guy, I, I refuse to recognize motherhood as a job; it's a vocation. It's um, th- this is ridiculous. No, Administrative Professionals Day for the love of God. Where does this stop? Uh, fair enough. Well, I'll tell you where it doesn't stop, Ed. Uh, also, that's the patriarchy. Day. That that's the patriarchy, JD. That's sexism, and right. I won't hear it. Administrative it Professionals Day s- is is catering to a ridiculous and outmoded stereotype. Where if you're an administrative professional, you need to have you know you're basically in a subservient position, presumably to some kind of portly man who you know makes sexist comments to you for the rest of the days of the year. So he should give you flowers. That's not at all pejorative. Um, <laughs> you know, one day a year to make up for it for his boorish behavior. No, the entire idea is antiquated and antediluvian. I'm opposed to it, JD. Nay. I say nay. Now, Ed, 
I find this one interesting. Uh, Leif Erikson Day. No, why do I care? I d- you know who Leif Erikson yes, is? Yes, he's the he's the the Viking who you know was first to land in North America from Europe, right? This is correct. Yeah, I don't care. He doesn't need a day. I mean, it's quite a feat. What did he do with it? Built a little fort, I think. Wintered there, and then uh, hustled back to uh, hustled back to Norway. Yeah, quitter. No, you don't get a day. <laughs> Groundhog's Day. No. I mean, it gave us the movie, which is fabulous. Don't get me wrong. I love the film. Though that's the only argument for this ridiculous day where, I yeah, I don't understand anything about it. I d- it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I think it's weird. Uh, National Ed Golden Retrievers Day, February 3rd. I, I can't even begin coming. No, we're not. What is there a day for every dog breed? I mean, this is absurd. Well, I presume that the Golden Retriever people, um, I, I presume that the Golden Retriever people uh, are clearly as needy uh, as their dogs. I don't know. I do. This is ridiculous. Ed, uh, July 17th, uh, National Ice Cream Day. No. What is di- <laughs> this is ludicrous. I was in New York with my wife a couple of weeks ago, and while we were walking, we saw um, something called the Na- called the ice the National Ice Cream Museum. And uh, we don't think it's an actual museum. We think it was some kind of a. St- it was very late at night, just closed. But we don't think it was, we think it was actually a boutique. But it was just called the Ice Cream Museum because people like to be hip or whatever. But we told our son we made the mistake of telling our our, our children that we pass the Ice Cream Museum. And uh, our, now one of our sons asks us every single day if it's a day for the Ice Cream Museum, and it was asking if we could go to the museum this weekend and Kate said yeah we're going to go to the museum of nature and science and it's going to be great and we're going to see a big dinosaur and he started sort of softly sobbing and she said why and he said because I thought it was going to be the ice cream museum so I too am opposed to national ice cream day and this one is going to be difficult for you though um, as a day of observation or celebration opening day oh of baseball yeah yeah no I wrote about this in my newsletter this year opening day is dead to me ever since the rule changes I'm done <laughs> the universal DH killed opening day for me Nope. June 19th uh, is Wristwatch Day. Oh. Honoring not only wristwatches, but watchmakers. Okay. Uh, so you do not like, I just want to remind you, you do not like days that honor people for the jobs for which they're paid. But June 19th is Wristwatch Day. Okay, but they're artisans and craftsmen and engineers of a particular <laughs> so science that is vanishing. Day, is, they should get a day, but administrative professionals, no day. That's that's your non-sexist position is that watchmakers should get National Watch Day, but administrative professionals, no dice. It depends on what we're, how loose the definition of watchmakers are we applying. I mean, if we're, if we are talking purely about all mechanical, real orology, this is a vanishing science outside of Switzerland. So is administrative professionalism, by the way. People work at home now. Who's got a receptionist or secretary? You're not even allowed to say that, but you know, so is that. I, I don't. I don't have. You're the f- a real trap here. I don't have the figures in front of me for that, JD. But I am aware of the of the shortage of um, uh, of people entering professional watchmaking. That this is one of the reasons why the price of Swiss watches has been steadily escalating in the last ten years is because there is a supply side problem because there are not the qualified watchmakers coming through. 
to to keep up the ranks. So it, to the extent that a Watchmaker's Day is about raising awareness of the vocation and perhaps attracting young people to an exciting and fulfilling career, you know, I'd be in favor of that. I don't think the Watchmakers of Switzerland or Japan uh, particularly need a day of recognition for their hard work. They They are satisfied in their own labors. They know their own worth and good for them. Um, but it, to the extent that it's awareness raising to for the next generation, I, I suppose, yes. Plus, you've got to figure, Ed, I mean, you've got to figure, I at least figure, um, I at least figure that National Watch Day probably has a very storied history and tradition. Am I right? I don't know, but I'd like to think. As it happens, National uh, Wrist Watch Day uh, began, Ed, in um, the far past year of 2013 when Nordstrom's department store began celebrating National Watch Day in an effort to move more watches. Oh, and well, then this, if this is about selling thereafter, all watches. Forget it. Shortly no. thereafter, had it registered in the national calendar of observations No, I'm sorry. I, I, this, is the, this is a misnomer. If this is not about honoring urology as a profession, but is in fact about department stores shifting mall watches, forget about it. No way. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, Ed, uh, You cannot today, buy a good watch at Nordstrom's. I sure? take that back. You can probably get a Seiko 5 there, but no. You could probably get decent watches at Nordstrom's. It's a fancy department store. You, no. The, the reason mall watch is a term of duration is because you, you really can't. I mean, again, Seiko have bled through so you can get a decent automatic in most places now, I suppose. But uh, beyond that, I'd be very surprised if you could get decent watches at Nordstrom's. I didn't know, by the way, I, I did not know that... Um, Mall watch was a pejorative term. I I would have had no idea. It is. Well, now I know. Uh, Ed, are you at all curious? I mean, surely you must have found yourself wondering. um, By the way, is the Tissot C-Star 1000 chronograph a good watch? Uh, Tissot have been having a a wild upswing in popularity recently for some of their stuff. But this is all part of the... It's become very on. It, basically, this is, as most things are, this is the fault of the Patek Philippe Nautilus, which is one of the most you overrated. Can buy it. I'm just saying you can buy it at Nordstrom. Is yeah, the I, Hamilton, I'm not on board with the T-Sot stuff. This is, is basically the Hamilton, since Paddock killed the Nautilus, which was itself a ridiculously overhyped watch. I never cared for it. But when they killed the Nautilus, now integrated all steel, um, all steel watches with integrated bracelets have become a thing. And T-Sot have been, you know, sort of getting in at the bottom of that market. And I, yeah, I don't care for it. I wouldn't. It's not where is I the Hamilton mind. Khaki Pilot a good watch? Uh, Hamilton or a Swatch Group. They used to be an American. They, Hamilton used to be a heritage American watchmaker, and they got gobbled up by the Swatch Group um, a couple of years ago. I they make the the Pilot Pioneer is. I would put it on a par with a Seiko Five for for mechanical chops. Like this is this is your entry level automatic watch. There's nothing wrong I'm just with saying it. You can get no, these things at Nordstrom. Yeah, but I wouldn't call those nice watches. I'd call them entry level good watch. Oh, all it's right. Not, it's, okay. not, well. it's not high horology. This is this is your this is your ground floor. Well, good good to know. But you know, if you would like to have a ground floor entry, I don't know why I'm advertising for Nordstrom now. Don't uh, go to Nordstrom if you want to. If you want to buy a good watch and you don't want to stray beyond a retailer whose name you already know, Walmart have got good watches. Oh, okay. Ed, did you find yourself at any point at all curious um, what today was? It's May six. Yeah, but I mean, what today's special day is. No, what is today's special day? I'm almost afraid today's to ask Today's special day is National Space Day. Hey, that's cool. National Space Day, yay or nay? Uh, yay. I'm pro-space. <laughs> I'm pro-space. 
Okay. Well, I'm Pro Space 2, and we will be back next week with a special episode in which we talk about all things uh, Roe versus Wade and the way in which they impact the life of the church. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the World Congress of Catholic Nurses. If you are a Catholic nurse, attend this unique opportunity to gather with other Catholic nurses in praise to God and thanksgiving and, and thanksgiving for the gift of nursing um, in August 2022 at the World Congress of Catholic Nurses to be held in Pennsylvania. And you can find a link to register in the show notes of this episode. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flint. I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon, and we'll be back next week.